Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. The experience of putting your heart and soul into a job beyond kind of what is a kind of normal level of work-life balance and then to be judged to be doing it very publicly inadequately and a report that tells the world that that's that's how you're judged and that's how it feels very personal that was 100 percent the worst and the sort of months leading up to it were just absolutely atrocious a feeling of drowning being out of your depth and not being able to solve the problems that were presenting to you every day. Feeling responsible for thousands of people, all the teachers, all the children, all their parents, and just thinking, it's going wrong. That was tough. And then it all kind of exploded. Today, I'm talking to Tom Sherrington, education consultant and author. With 30 years experience as a teacher and school leader, Tom is now teaching teachers through his groundbreaking series of walkthrough books, which at the last count are being used in 50 countries around the world. Everywhere from Brighton to Brazil, from Norwich to New Zealand. And also he coaches through his blog, teacherhead.com, which has thousands of followers. Tom is in demand worldwide and works with hundreds of schools and colleges, providing training and consultancy support to improve the quality of teaching. As such, he's a regular keynote speaker at many education conferences and festivals. In our conversation, Tom shares what the students did to him as a supply teacher, what an exhausted colleague did when the next class was arriving, and why, when he couldn't see the wood for the trees, Tom went to see the trees in the wood. Tom, thank you so much for coming on to Better Under Pressure. You have spent your whole career in education, and uh, you and I met in education. Firstly, obviously, you're teaching And then now you're teaching teachers and writing and getting your head under the covers on learning, which I really, really love. So I'm very excited to have you. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm really thrilled to be part of your your excellent podcast. Good. So, Tom, do you think you're better under pressure? (laughs) This is the the only issue. I think there's a healthy pressure that you create to be productive. And I, I feel like I do work well under pressure when I'm the person that's generated that pressure because I, I set myself goals and I think I want to achieve things. And sometimes you push yourself to sort of declare things a bit publicly and you say, I'm going to do this and it, it makes you do it. Um, so I feel like as long as the pressure is a kind of pressure to perform and achieve in a kind of healthy way, then I do. I think I do. I think I respond well to that because I feel like it motivates me. And to do things and to be energetic and so on. So yeah, it depends on the, who's providing the pressure. Because <laughs> so when it's someone yeah. else's pressure, I don't think I do so well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And actually, it's funny you should mention your own pressure that you create because sometimes, because you do an awful lot, don't you, on um, Twitter and calling things out. I know you for somebody who calls things out. Now, for me, that creates a huge amount of internal pressure. If I feel I'm saying something that might create some sort of difference of opinion. Um, But but you don't seem to care about that, Tom. That's what I really love about you. You just say what you feel and you say what you think and you're happy to provoke. So that area of pressure doesn't seem to bother you quite so much or it doesn't seem to. 
that fair? I think I, I curate that. So I feel like with social media, it is, you know, you have to manage the boundaries a bit. And although I do sort of say things that I, I feel I need to say, I do also do a little bit of, you know, <laughs> muting and blocking around the outside. Uh, okay. Because well, I think you have to. I think sometimes you just think, I don't really need that person, you know, kind of coming back at me like that all the time. So you think, well, I don't really know them. I'm not. So I, I kind of, I do, I do organize that a little bit. So it feels there's a bit of safety around that. But, but I do feel like sometimes I do have a platform and I, and I recognize that. So I do say things which I feel other people don't have a chance to say. And um, I do think that's important. But also I like to promote ideas. So if I think something's good and important, I do like to say, well, this is good. You know, you should, people should be doing this. And I, I think that that's important to do that. Because again, you know, because I have a, I've created this platform, people will listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I thought there'd be two ways we could have this conversation, actually. Firstly, or well, not necessarily in this order, but I'm really interested in you and how you manage press pressure. We'll talk it, we'll get into that. But also I'm really intrigued in your work with teachers and the education profession, how you see pressure turning up for them. Mm. And when you feel it's healthy and um, sort of stretching pressure um, and when you feel it turns into something else and also how you see teachers who, you know, frankly don't necessarily choose to teach. And I speak as one for, who was one for 13 years. Don't, you don't go in it to earn money. So you, you go into it because learning matters, children matter, education matters. How you see pressure turning up for teachers at any level, really, and whether you see it turning up differently depending on how senior they are. So I'd really like to dig into that as well. So let's start with you, Tom, first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about what, when, when was the worst pressure that you've ever felt personally? Yeah, well, it's actually, it's, I've been commenting on that just now, now today and this week, because, um, I mean, people will know that there's a, an inquiry that's going on with Ofsted um, and the death of Ruth Perry, who's a head teacher who uh, took her life after an inspection, which judged her school to be inadequate. And um, that also happened to me. Um, and so I've been sort of sharing my experience of, of being through an inspection where my school was judged inadequate and how that affected me, partly to so show solidarity and to sort of say, this isn't just a, a one-off thing. This happen, happens to hundreds of people, in fact. And um, it, that is definitely the worst. So the experience of working really hard, sort of putting your heart and soul into a job beyond kind of what is a kind of normal level of work-life balance and all those things, and then to be judged to, to be doing it very publicly, inadequately, Mm. And a report that tells the world that that's that's how you're judged, and that's how it feels mm. very personal. That was hundred percent the worst, and the sort of months mm. leading up to it were just absolutely atrocious. Just a feeling of drowning, being out of your depth, and not being able to solve the problems that were presenting to you every day, and feeling responsible for thousands of people, like all the teachers, all the children, all their parents, and just thinking it's going wrong and I don't quite know what to do about it. <laughs> yeah. That was, you know, that, that was tough. So yeah. And then it all kind of exploding. So I, I, that was extreme. Like if I had a graph of the pressure I experienced in my life, you know, generally that was just a way off the scale, like just a massive spike. And um, I guess it gradually accumulated, but then it just went beyond what I could manage. So that, that was bad. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you notice 
I think it's such a good point you're making because pressure can trickle along for a while for people. Yeah. And then it, as you just says, said, spikes incredibly. And then you feel this like out of controlness, which on the whole, I think is a really important part of pressure is once we feel like we've relinquished control and we have got no choices, although we always have, of course, but it doesn't feel like that at the time. Um, how how did you notice that the pressure was going beyond invigorating and yeah. definitely into completely depe depleting. It, it, you become emotional. That's how I noticed. Mm. Sort of literally, you know, after a, a governor's meeting or something where they're feeling the pressure too. They feel responsible and they can tell things are, you know, the, some of the challenges are not being resolved because they're they're difficult. Yeah. And you're trying to say, we're doing all these things and and feeling a total lack of support from from them for the things I was trying to do, even though they didn't know any better. <laughs> just, yeah. And then just feeling emotional about that, just feeling yeah. like crying essentially, yeah. and just thinking, yeah, you know, what am I supposed to do? And that that is a feeling like so. In a way, your body has this way of telling you, you know, tears, crying, and emotional state that you get into, and that that's like most people don't go to work and have to have to experience that intensity of emotion it's very rare even and i you know you notice that in other people i think that emotional state when it's unusual when it when it's not a sort of something that happens to you very often mm. for those reasons there are other, other things um but just on that tom who yeah. who who saw it and how, how did you get through that just just the emotional bit a what, what helped you the most close colleagues so a couple of people right. would sort of discover you know <laughs> you were yeah. like in a state yeah. I always felt though that um, it was in a, it was wrong to bring that home, and I, sometimes I, I'll regret that because I feel like perhaps I could have been more honest about those things. But actually, I felt like it doesn't feel right to sort of be doing. So I would sort of like process that kind of on the way home, or or, right. or share it with someone in in the organisation. But again, I don't think that helped me either because they were also in it. <laughs> so I just yeah. had this horrible. Yeah. I'm offloading to someone who I'm actually responsible for, and they're looking to me for guidance, and then there's me sort of saying. Oh my god, I'm out of control. They're sort of looking at me. Oh my god, what if you're out of control? God help us all. <laughs> yeah, like so. What's what's the answer? And you feel like I never found the person who I could say, like totally neutral. Just oh my god, this is. And I didn't have that to hand, you know. And I feel like you know I could have come home and and, and shared those things, but you know I felt like I needed to be a little bit more brave face and, and perhaps was healthy to do. But that's I, that was my response to that. Mm -hmm. And then what did, what happened? Well, what happened from what, what happened was that you know the school was a very tough place to work, and we 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 didn't really sort of resolve some issues around behaviour management, and the school was judged to be inadequate, and basically the governors didn't back me up, and I was more or less sacked. It wasn't it wasn't officially that way, but literally on the last mm -hmm. day of the school term, I had an email, not even a personal contact, just saying I didn't have the governor's support, and that was it. So I was like, oh, God. So I went to this Christmas holiday just thinking, that's it. I mean, it's all over and not know what to do about it. And then coming back after the Christmas holiday, this whole report was about to be made public. And it was just, I couldn't cope with it. So literally, I kind of just had a moment where I just said, I can't go in. I can't do it. Yeah. And that, that's a kind of a weird feeling. Like, nobody told me not to go in. I just I just couldn't face it. Yeah, and that's never happened to me before or since. I just thought I can't walk in those doors, and and I went to see. I contacted the you know you have union reps, mm. 
I contacted them and they just said, well, join the club. You know, you are, we have calls from people like you every day. (laughs) And uh, they said, you're doing pretty well because at least you can speak. (laughs) Gosh. And they were saying like, there were so many people who have this sort of intense experience. And it is a common phenomenon that people just sort of buckle under and, and you're just sort of forgotten about, you know. So that was bad. And I, and what I did then was I decided I had to do something every day. So I went walking. So I used mm. to go for walks, like really extreme walks. <laughs> I could go out of the house at like nine o'clock and just walk for the rest of the day through all the woods. Wow, woods Tom. London. I walked all the way from, uh, through Queenswood, down through, um, across, across to Parliament Hill, Primrose Hill, Hampstead Heath, down into Regent's Park, along the river, and all the way home and just, just like, phew, what to... did that do? What did that do? That's incredible, actually. That extension. Just, yeah, go on. Just, just need to be moving, like mm. <laughs> just sort of it, and moving around and sort of and just seeing like beautiful places and just doing something else, being physical yeah. rather than mental. And it just yeah. it gives you a chance to just think, you know, it's going to be okay. I, it's not that there's going to be life beyond this. And you sort of start putting things into perspective slowly. You think deep breath and that sense of, there's a sort of, sort of all these sort of emotions of failure and being sort of humiliated slightly. You just think, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like It's going to be all right. And, but you just need to be actively doing something. When you're all sort of working at like bum, bum, bum all the time and then stopping dead, I felt like, I just that was just my instinct to just do something else which was yeah to do that so i went on walks every day for a good couple of weeks and then <laughs> thought right okay i probably should start to get another job now <laughs> and i wow. tried to sort of put myself out there and, and then the, that that sort of started to happen but that took it took a while but that that instinct to walk and be in nature mm. or something I think it's it's so important. And sometimes when we're going so fast, it's incredibly difficult to, in a way, I mean, in a way your body was extraordinary. It just said, I'm not going in. (laughs) I'm just not walking into that building. That didn't seem like that. That was a cognitive decision in a way. It it felt like your body just was not going to get you in through that door. Um, And I love the body for that. I love the fact that actually when we really train ourselves to listen to our body, we can... We can move all sorts of things. I mean, it's like moving energy, basically. What 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 I'm getting as you're talking about that is you're moving the energy right yeah. the way through along what is moving it through, tracking it, moving it, shifting it, so that um yeah. you can free up different seeing, space. Seeing other parts of life. I mean, I one of the walks I went, I, yeah. I went into this um I think I just needed to go to the loo to be honest, but I went to this pub. Um <laughs> just um down off the Cal- on the Caledonian Road, and I walked in, and I just thought, it was like a scene from EastEnders or something. It was full of all these elderly people um, just having a great time <laughs> and drinking Guinness and stuff. And it was like it was like one o'clock, and they were just it was packed. And from the outside, I couldn't really couldn't really hear anything. They opened the door, it's like wow, it's lively. This community of people, I just thought, how amazing is that? Like life, life goes on. Life, look at all these people yeah. just being being in this place. And I just thought, I just sat there for. a for an hour or so, but that kind of thing was just to sort of get a different feeling perspective, perspective and just thinking, you know, and I, I, it's like coming down from this huge sort of cliff. Mm. Uh, and it took me, you know, that, that to do that. But it's interesting. I didn't really sort of connive. I didn't really think I need to do this because it will have this effect. I just thought I need to do something today. So 
Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful when you listen to your instinct, isn't it? Sometimes, yes, you know, yeah. it tells you what you need and it's often very primeval. It's just like get walking, move around, see. Because I think what's interesting about pressure does reduce, it constrains you. It, cons- it literally constricts you and your world becomes narrower. Um, yeah. And you can only see one thing very, very brightly. And going for walks, you're looking around, you're seeing bigger, you're seeing expansion. Um, you're seeing things that are bigger than you through the trees. And then, you know, you're seeing different worlds as well. I love that. I mean, to be honest, I mean, as a natural place, is quite, if you could stand in the middle of Queenswood or parts of Hampstead Heath and feel like you'd never, you had no idea you're in the middle of a city. And I used to love that sort yeah. of, just the being like away from everything. A few days into it, I sort of just take, you know, taking a few pictures of the fo- of the trees and stuff, and and kind of absentmindedly sort of uploading them, sort of uploading to Facebook, like like you would like posting where I am. And then I realised that people contact me saying, "So why, where are you? Because isn't it aren't you at work?" <laughs> and I wasn't really thinking at the time. People, this will make people realise I'm not at work, but maybe subconsciously I did. Um, yes, because then people started saying. How's what's happened? And I thought, oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be able to do this on a work day normally, would I? And I I kind of realized that that was a bit of a giveaway. So then I had to sort of explain to people what was happening. But yeah, that maybe that was waving a little flag saying something's, <laughs> something's happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the woods. Well, it sounds, I mean, often when you're reading um, about the research done on pressure, there are, you know, tend to be sort of three key things that implode to make it like that spike you've just described, which is extreme uncertainty, which you had in buckets, mm. um, volume, so like no respite, just relentlessly every yeah. day getting worse, um, and high stakes. Yeah, high well, stakes. High stakes is massive in terms of being the head yeah. teacher of a school that is being hugely scrutinised. It is, and I, I think that's the real problem with it. It's a sort of gun to the head of feeling. Yeah. You feel like all the decisions you're taking, you're saying, well, you're not, you're not, you, you, you can't just sort of discuss them on their own merits and say, you know, well, maybe that will work. Maybe maybe we need to need to, need to try this, and we've got we've got this difficult situation. Maybe that will be the solution in a sort of rational way, because you're thinking, but we've got it because 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 you yeah. know, what if they come? What if they come? They'll think this. They'll think that you're sort of doing things short term rather than long term and um, dressing things up when you shouldn't be, you know, yeah. it'll look bad. It'll look bad. You're thinking, well, no, it doesn't matter if it looks bad. It is bad, but yes. you can't, you start thinking about things in a, in a way which is unhealthy. But of course, you know, I think this is a, this is the real hard truth of it is that um, I think you don't, you stop performing as well as you should be. So, because you can't see the wood for the trees. And one of the things that I feel, sometimes when you're under pressure is you almost have to think like the best thing I can do now is not try to solve the problem is let's just realize it's not going to go well unless I just take a big step back and go like okay yeah. look, really broad view here what is the best focus priority and maybe be bold enough to ax a few things and just say look just focus on that keep it calm to just try to do fewer things better mm-hmm but in the in the heat of it, where everything feels like it needs to be fixed, yeah, um, you you kind of get stuck stuck in a rabbit hole of addressing one thing and then don't address other things as well. And I, I felt like that was the biggest problem of all that your own performance is the thing that is just mm. it is actually deteriorating, and you kind of mm. don't want to believe that, but it is. And you know, you can only see that afterwards that 
you're doing or, or deciding things which were just not the most important thing to think about or didn't go fully intensive enough into certain areas when you needed to. Yeah. And it feels so counterintuitive, doesn't it, in the moment of the pressure as well to slow down and say, as you say, take a massive step back. It seems, you know, you're what I would call, you know, your sort of your dog brain, your sort of emotional hub of your brain in that sort of moment is thinking, you know, keep going, keep doing, <laughs> keep trying, yeah. keep going forward, faster, do do more, do more. And actually, it, it's it's not what's most useful at that point. No, exactly, and it's that <laughs> the dog brain. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and sometimes you, you can start feeling a bit sort of um, circle the wagon z about things like defensive and um, yeah. sort of feel like everything's against you. And, and that's not healthy either. You, it's no. a really terrible mindset to get into, but it can happen if you feel like at every turn, things don't seem to go your way. And I remember calling this, this uh, meeting. I just thought, well, one of those I'm going to solve that there are 10 children in this school who we just really didn't know what to do with them because They've got such chronic emotional trauma uh, in their lives and they don't seem they don't have special needs in the learning sense um so that they're, they're not the, the the special needs provision that was available to us was more to do with the cognitive impairments and things like that and these children were just emotionally traumatized and so but they couldn't really focus very well on normal lessons and there was no provision for them so that you put them in a lesson and they'd be out in five minutes mm. you know swearing fighting just walking out you know you'd find them on the corridor <laughs> what's happened why is this kid on the corridor and then and it'd be loads of those like in a day and you think oh eat case by case you know you the the the, the lives these children had led were just you know horrific scenarios and I'd, i just had this meeting with these i just called these people in from the local authority i said look I really just wanted some help with this what, what do you think we should be doing like what would be the best provision what none of them could answer me they had no ideas and they just said to me well we're just here to remind you that you're responsible for these children and you're accountable for them and i was thinking like so i've asked you for help and you've come to put on even more pressure you know and that's that's how there was that was their response yeah. i just thought oh my god i'm holding my hands up here and you're not you're not helping yeah. me that was like i just thought god you know what does it take what does it take you know to to get help yeah. I, I thought, you know, that to me, it's it sort of, you know, triggers me a bit. You think, gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. can hear it. I know. Yeah. I mean, it's so, that is stored, isn't it? Those sorts of yeah, things yeah. that happen to us get stored in every yeah, yeah. cell of our body. So that we only have to revisit it like we are in this conversation. You can yeah. feel it. I know, it's like, I know the emotions come up. It's I like, know. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? That's the power of this stuff, right? Yeah, it is. And so, you know, for teachers particularly, you know, who are, you know, I've been a teacher. I'm now not a teacher. But one of the things that I that I think is completely um, amazing about teachers and what they do is you are on. There's no sense of taking 10 minutes off because you're not quite ready yet. You are on and you've got 30 often very challenging individuals, particularly if you're working yeah. between 11 and 18, sitting, looking at you with expectations. Time after time in the, in the school that you and I worked in, it was five hours every day. But, you know, like, yeah, boom. Yeah. And the younger you are, the less break you get. You can have a dreadful lesson. And then you've got like literally 90 seconds, if you're lucky, to then get yourself ready for the next 30 individuals that are lined up outside your door. And that, you know, for all of the work that I've done since, and I've actually, I mean, I've been working longer outside of education now than in, it's pretty unique, I would say. 
Mm. Um, from most businesses, I, I'm not talking about nurses and edu- you know, I'm not talking about other vocations. I'm talking about enterprise businesses, which is where I spend most of my time now. I mean, there's different pressures, obviously, but this relentless performance in with an audience is pretty intense, yeah. I'd say. I think it is. And I, th- and I think this is where, you know, there's, there's some interesting research around um, you know, teacher retention and what, what motivates people to, to stay in teaching. And it, it's a sense of autonomy is one yes. of them. And so people like to feel that sense of freedom, but at the same time, they also want to feel, you know, that they can develop professionally and that there's a sort of level of support. And I feel like when it, when accountability pressure undercuts the support and reduces autonomy, it those things get chipped away at. Yeah. It's such an interesting tension that you need to feel like you can be yourself and express yourself as a teacher, but at the same time, you need to feel supported by a system that's around you. And I, I feel like, you know, in some situations I go in, that's really good. I mean, I go to visit schools where they're really nailing that. And it's like, wow, you really feel supported here. And others where it's, it's pretty much sink or swim. The teachers say, well, I, don't, I wouldn't know who to call. I don't know what happens if, if things go wrong. And I feel like that performance thing with the, with students is tough. One of, one of my favourite scenarios I've come across recently was with a friend of mine who's um, a very experienced teacher, ex- exceptional English teacher, very talented guy. And so he's like sort of at the top of his game. Yeah, but you know, even he gets tired. He's teaching a he's teaching a full timetable. I went to visit him, and he was standing in the corridor at the end of lunchtime. And he'd been he'd had kids in his room all lunch, just some slightly more challenged children. He just some extra support with, and he they just left. And he he'd had like a five minute break, and he went, "Oh, it's a bit full on today." Sort of offloaded to me a bit, going, "Guy, it's a bit tough. It's tough, you know." But then he saw his his class come down the corridor, his year 11s. He went, "Anyway, look, got to go." All right, guys, coming in. Yeah, great. Yeah, come yeah. on, great to see you. It's like switched it right back on. Yeah. Total energy. Bum, bum, bum. We're going to talk about of mice and men or Macbeth or yeah. whatever he's doing. Straight into the, the teaching. So for him, he was like so on, so switched yeah. on. But it's like that's he's a human being, highly yeah. functioning one. But at the end of that, it's going to be absolutely so the highs yeah. and lows of that, that yeah, yeah. performance. That Yeah. Some teachers find that incredibly hard. And then to be judged for it. Yeah, yeah. Some people say, Ooh, you know, that wasn't as good as it could have been. You think, oh, God, <laughs> you get in here and do this. It's tough. <laughs> I know. But to run a room with 30 children and all learning, all thinking. Um, all at different stages. Yeah, it's yeah. so hard. I want to go back to that tension that Tom referred to. The tension between having enough freedom to authentically express yourself and at the same time to feel that you're performing in a system that'll support you if you need it. Autonomy can provide challenge and the system can provide support because research tells us that people grow most when exposed to both. Whether you're a teacher or not, this feels very relevant and can play a huge part in our relationship with pressure. When feeling pressure, it's useful to ask these questions. Do I have enough autonomy to grow? Do I have sufficient support? And actually, I'd follow up with one more. What can I choose to do to impact either of them? because this of course immediately ignites a level of autonomy. I love the example Tom shared of his teacher colleague who switched in a split second from downloading how tough it had been into facing his advancing class and welcoming them with high positive energy. That's such a brilliant example of how we can instantly up the feeling of autonomy, not dependent on anyone else at all. And instead it reminds ourselves that we have the freedom to choose And it proves to ourselves that we always have autonomy over how we can respond to any situation. 
It was that practice as a teacher of switching state that I will be eternally grateful for. I learned to shift my state in 90 seconds in a turnaround as one class left and another was lining up outside. I learned that however badly that lesson had gone, I could depend on myself to shift into a positive state for the next class through a short ritual involving, usually, jumping up and down on the spot, a motivating self-talk, and turning and walking with energy towards the door with a smile. And I'm grateful that I learned that, although it did take time and a lot of very tough lessons to work it out. The relentless performance energy that you have to call on as a teacher required a routine to get me into a performance state. And I make no apology for the term performance, by the way, because that's what it is. And great performance, whether it's in the classroom, in the boardroom, on the sports field or on a stage, requires a deliberate routine or ritual to help us access that state quickly. Past guests have mentioned it on many occasions. For example, Charlotte Cox, President Amir at Pentland Brands, talked about how she says to herself, now it's showtime, Charlotte. And more recently, neuroleadership coach and ultra-athlete Lara Millwood referenced how she connects to the power of a starting gun. Once again, it's whatever works for you, and it does need practicing. Back to Tom. In the education profession, we've been through a, a pretty dark tunnel of accountability-driven school improvement, which has scarred quite a lot of people. And it, it need, it's sort of changing, actually. I think it is changing, um, but it's, it still needs to go further so that you feel like rather than being ch sort of criticised for things going wrong, it's, it should be, gosh, well, that's a pro tough problem to solve, isn't it? Yeah, how do we support you to solve that difficult challenge you have? Yeah, uh, and if that's how it felt that we were more sort of supporting each other to solve our our challenges rather than criticise for doing things wrong or badly, it, it would be it, it's a it's a total change in in philosophy. Which where that's present, it, it it's palpable, and you feel teachers really enjoy their work far far more. Yeah, yeah, and so you know what what having had the experience that you've had, that must that must make. Um, you incredibly useful, I would say, for for teachers, Tom. And you know, when you see and witness, because you're all over the world now, witnessing different classrooms and the learning that's going on within those systems. What do you say to people who are feeling that sort of pressure? I mean, what 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 is their agency in a system that is maybe not necessarily providing the support that in a in our dreams we wish they would? What what's your advice to those teachers? Teachers, I always feel like there are things you can do, you know, that in, to make to make the space that you're in with your own. You know, you can you can own it. You can you can set some boundaries around it, and you can just try to create a job that you feel is the one you want to do and teach well. I always say that if you if you feel you're too teaching well through doing certain things and establishing certain routines most people will accept that will support you for that so sort of seize the metal you know take take initiative and rather than feeling like you're sort of subjected to this sort of external pressure just say well what would you want to do imagine none of those people were there what would you do do those things you know yeah do things you think are effective and, and do them well and probably uh, people will be happy with that and sometimes people think gosh okay so what would i do then because they're so they're so used to just receiving directives they haven't stopped to think mm. well what one of my own choices mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. once you say well, that's a good idea try that yeah try that and then give and sort of empowering people to kind of think more 
also I, i'm a big believer more and more actually in collective action i actually feel like from the privileged position i have of going into a school and watching you know four teachers that hour four teachers that hour four teachers that hour you see that in one school they all have so much in common and, and when you say don't go off fighting your own little siloed yeah. challenge so many of the things that you're dealing with are similar so yeah. why, don't, why don't you all look at doing these things together because then you'll it'll be much more coherent for the students and you'll be you'll, you'll have solidarity in the fact that you're working on the same things and you'll be able to exchange ideas and i often find that's really important to sort of build collaborative cultures where people are aware that the other, other people in the other room next door which you can't see are having similar problems to you and yeah. you're not just fighting a solo battle but it comes from within from the team up rather than the top down you know and i and i, I think that's important that people have that sort of collective agency uh, and that yeah. sense solving problems together yeah i mean i love that because you're, you're talking so much about you know the energies that you know i talk about quite a lot is that in order to have choice we have to own our our sources of energy and i think it's yeah. so much harder to make choices as you know through your story it's very evident that when you're completely like run down and you've got no fuel in your tank it's incredibly mm-hmm. hard to feel like you have agency yeah. um because it's fatiguing. But I think if you can start to really take that step back and look after yourself and know what actually your conditions for success are, which are very different for each individual, then you can operate within the system because you can then find out where your choices are. And I love this point about people energy, you know, find the people that are doing the same stuff, who are interested in the same things, who've got similar inquiries and and group together because yeah. it's lonely. For all the autonomy you get for a teacher, it's yeah. very much a lone performance, hey? I, I agree. And in fact, you know, going back to the school where we first met, I mean, one of the yeah. things I felt was remarkable there was how you almost had to pretend that you were great in the classroom with the students <laughs> behaving. You weren't allowed to say, but my year nines are totally murdering me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no. It's only yeah. like, People would come to your rescue if they heard you shouting and loud enough through the, through the door. But it's sort of, it wasn't like, how do we do it well? How do we support each other? That's not how I felt. So I felt like we had to sort of fight our own battle and you'd, you'd learn some skills. But it, and so you became quite good at it because you had to. But it wasn't yes. because the system you walked into said, right, let's help you run a good classroom, you know, and this is how it's done. It was like getting there and working out for yourself. Yeah. So it's like, wow, okay. So at a couple of fairly traumatic years there, thinking, blimey, this is tough. The kids are so rude. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I, I jokingly call my time at that school, you know, my MBA in my unintentional MBA in self-leadership. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, it's it's been the biggest gift. I, I often say this is nothing is as bad as being in a dysfunctional year nine lesson. <laughs> you know, it really isn't. You know, trying to teach in my view, you know, in my subject trying to teach drama to year nine boys who've decided they're not going to opt for it the next year was hell on earth. It was brutal. And it was often on a Monday morning. But this idea that you've just described about switching on, I learned how to do that. And, I, yeah. and I'm ever grateful for that because the potential that we all have as human beings to switch into performance if we have a drill, you know, if we have a way of doing it, we know how we can do it. I think is incredibly invaluable. It's not at the cost of not being able to say, I'm having a really bad time, but to be able to but to do both, to have the space to be able to say, where am I needing to learn more? How can you help yeah. me get better here? How can we collectively get better? To have that space, as well as the personal skill of saying, right, I'm now 
I'm on. Like that guy. Boom. See your class. Right. Okay. Off we go. I'm on. One of the things I learned very late in the day, I watched some videos at home and a famous behavior management guru called Bill Rogers from Australia. Mm. And he- this idea of positive framing. And I thought, well, what a great wish I'd guy. someone had told me that 10 years ago. <laughs> because honestly, I could sense that the students are coming to my class anticipating being told off by me, bad footing from the beginning. And I was like, well, how do I break that cycle? And he showed you how. It basically, you just say, come on, guys, good to see you. Thanks, everybody. This is great. What a new lot. These people are ready to learn. Excellent. Everyone, this table's ready. Brilliant. <laughs> Michael, Joanna, thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Abdi, brilliant. And you'll say, praise, praise, praise. And you say, then there's a couple. You go, Jonathan. Abdi, thank you. Michaela, excellent. Thanks. And it's all like waiting, patient, saying thanks a lot, rather than saying, Michaela, Abdi, turn around, shut up and get this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And not yeah, say yeah. anything to the kids doing it right. And I used to be terrible at that. You think people listen to this might be thinking, isn't that just basic? You think, well, sounds it <laughs> when you know it. Yeah. But when you're not doing it and no one's told you, it's a it's Come. a learned skill to be to positive frame and be super positive. It really is. And it, it's and people think it's common sense, but ultimately it's not very common unless you're practicing it on a regular basis because you learn you learn to complain if that's what your model's been most of the time. And you can learn to be positive if if you if you practice it. You're making me remember remember a, a dreadful moment where I literally I think I'd been teaching there for about two years. I was young and I came in to teach a oh, it was a GCSE class drama. And there was one girl, Tom. I, who I will never forget, who sat on the outside of the circle and she literally monologued throughout the whole of my lesson. Who the hell does she <laughs> think she is? She strides in here and she thinks she can just control the class. Who does she think? She, said, she just basically monologued about me all the right. way through the lesson while I was trying well, I was trying to teach these new people that I'd never met before because I was a new, newly qualified teacher. You have to hold your nerve. My God, did I did I teach myself how to hold my nerve? I yeah. totally ignored her for the whole lesson. But boy, it was tough. Oh, so um, my brutal ones was I first went to that school as a supply teacher, which was really like no one cared about you at all. Teaching maths to this again year nine. And I've probably had, you know, I'd like to think the last stages of acne was, you know, fading. And this girl said to me, get your disgusting spots out of my face, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just thought, oh, my God. It's just, it's just, yeah. And in that situation, there wasn't supposed to be anything that happened there. There wasn't like, okay, well, that's a consequence for that. That was just like, suck it yeah. up and move on. Yeah. Yeah, so we could we could reminisce endlessly about these. We things. could, we could, we could. But I, but I, I think like I, I, the I, pressure there is, is sort of trying to find your space in a system. And I feel like when I go to schools and work with people, I usually, or nearly always, I'm talk to the teachers themselves, but I also talk to the leaders. And what I find interesting is how sometimes leaders with good intentions are not communicating what they think they're communicating to the teachers, and so. And sometimes you're in a position to say, well, actually, you know, you're saying you've got lots of time and here's, we're really supportive and we're there for you. And uh, you, you've got time that you can direct yourself. And the teacher's here. Yeah. We've been told to do this. We've been told to do that. <laughs> yeah. You do have sometimes on a work around this whole thing of let's, let's, let's create a, an energy, which is positive pressure, but yeah. sort of autonomy driven with a sense of ambition and we want to do well, creating a kind of direction, a sense of direction and purpose, which doesn't feel whether well, the accountability element of it is in the, is in the right proportion. It's, it's quite subtle, and I feel like it takes you know it takes a lot of work to get that right. 
I agree. And I think that sits across all sorts of organizations, the point you're just making there around the leadership communication. And I love your point about trying to find your space in the system. It's like, I think that is all of our ambition really is recognize the system, decide whether you can work in that system. I mean, I'm often working with people who are striving in a system that actually doesn't hit their value system. Whereas if they went to a different system, they'd probably thrive. Or they decide, actually, I'm going to make a choice to thrive in this system because I don't have any control over the system. But again, all of those are choices that you can make if you step yeah. away for a bit and assess it. I think leaders play a massive role in establishing the system and establishing the, the, the sort of the roadmap of what we're trying to do together. Um, and pressure can really dilute that uh, communication rather than distill it. And I think there is a distinction between dilution and dis distillation. You can distill it because you it's so regular and it's such a drumbeat that everybody gets it and understands it and yeah. you can link it. But but if you don't do it, then it just becomes completely diluted and everyone's trying to find their way. I think there's a, a, a concept I quite like is alignment. Like you, it, it's useful if people are pulling in the same direction. How do you create alignment? You, you know, some people's approaches to some demand it <laughs> like yeah this is the way you know it feels like rigid but you can also just sell it and just say look let's all do this and um let people come to it because they agree with it and they get it and they want to be part of it and, and that's obviously much healthier but yeah. that risks also people will then drift away so you do have to work at that a lot harder because you have to kind of nudge people along and encourage people and sort of persuade people that this is the right way to go ultimately people are always individuals even if they're in a big organization sure. but if it's if if the a whole organization relies on top-down driven uh, our way or you know this way or the or no way kind of thing it's not a fun way to live you know so it, it, no. it also does also create pressure on those leaders to keep doing that and i i, I always think imagine you weren't there you know the, the thing's got to work on its own so you want to create alignment through people with a sense of shared yes vision all that kind of stuff yeah. so it has a lot to think about yeah yeah we we do quite a lot of work with head teachers um coming into to new schools one of the things that we always talk quite clearly about with them is often when they're coming into a school and they're trying to obviously make a new stamp or change the direction or if it's been not such a, a very successful school you want to you know they've been brought in to make it successful or yeah. um so the head teacher comes in and often what we're trying to judge is how do you make sure that you come in and set your tone and set your direction without absolutely slaying the legacy that's gone on before because you know 65 <laughs> percent, maybe 75 percent, even 85 percent of your staff may have been there for a been, been part of that legacy uh mm. so to come in and say that everything you're doing is not really working it's just tempering how do you um how do you build and bring people with you and also take it into a slightly different it's a very well, it's a leadership skill isn't it i mean I, I think one of the most fascinating things about these things is is that you ultimately you're working with with specific individual people and mm. i mean most of the people i know who are school leaders when they when they when you're talking to them they're talking about Know, this is the person who's responsible for that and um you know this person is that person and they they're, they're good at this but they find that hard and this person's got a great skill set around this and wow sometimes they rave about certain people and other people and and they themselves are aware of their own limitations and we we know we're humans so humans have this huge variation in what you're how effective you are and, and that makes it interesting but ultimately it is the challenge it's not like you can draw the map of of the organization diagram or whatever and make it all look neat but actually the way that people communicate is way more organic and 
up and down and yes. complex in now i mean now i've sort of well, i suppose i'm six of a bit years now and to be my own boss i just yes working for myself it's funny that because the only organization i have is one i've made and um and then we don't even employ people we have sort of partnerships with people and uh, publishing books and going to schools it's very sort of it's, it's a different way of working i do enjoy it but it, I, I suppose it's it's worked well and i've enjoyed it. i've got a colleague a partner and we have a sort of relationship between each other so we kind of the pressure that we put on each other is almost to fueled by our enthusiasm for the work yeah. so his enthusiasm fuels mine and it's a kind of a sense of needing to, to pull our weight for each other but it's much yeah. more um it's, it's it's a total sort of partnership and that's a, that's a wonderful thing and as soon as that's not the case i've had a few attempts at that with some other people where i thought i'm, I'm doing all the work here yes. <laughs> it doesn't work as well so yeah it's yeah. that kind of relationship yeah thing. yeah yeah but then you create pressure by through ambition through being wanting things to be successful and it's much less intense i mean i don't work nearly as hard as i used to do as a head teacher you're busy and you're energetic and you're doing things but the fact that it's all on your own terms it's, it's entirely different yeah but of course you're not responsible for a thousand vulnerable people uh, and oh. so of course it, it it's not ever going to be as as intense i suppose but one of the things i mean we I think it's worth saying in the context of people listening to this is that looking back over this sort of period, I wish I'd had the perspective that being like the ultimate successful head teacher, or whatever, it wasn't the limit of my sense of what I might be able to do because mm. I'm so sort of um, locked into that feeling like it's the ultimate job um, and to sort of not be doing well at that was difficult to take. But actually, if I'd known then that I could be successful doing something else, I might have been more just ready to just say, you know what, my analysis of the situation is I'm better off doing something else than this. Yeah. And just made a more sort of smooth transition to that without it being sort of so traumatic. It's easier. I don't know. Can you only ever do those things in hindsight? I don't know. But I do feel I don't know, like but it's a great question. Sometimes when you're in the hole to think, I don't have to be in this hole just step away from it without shame or fear and just it'll be all right and you just need to sort of trust that or that there's another world outside and i feel like sometimes it's so hard to see that when you're when you're in the in the thick of it that there's yeah. that there could be another way i so admire and value tom's honesty in this conversation and his humility about what he's learned along the way through various moments of high pressure his self-awareness in realising as a young teacher that when he came into the classroom, his students immediately anticipated that he was going to tell them off and how he actively addressed that. To working as a head in a profoundly challenging school where there was no level of support in the system and the immense impact that that had on him. In both those situations though, Tom, as he said, chose to break a cycle. In fact, a huge theme in this conversation is about choice and shared accountability and creating a sense of perspective to break that cycle. And the reminder that sometimes when we find ourselves in a hole, as he says, we can always step away. We always have a choice, even though it sometimes feels like we don't. When Tom was talking, I was reminded of that wonderful poem by Portia Nelson called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. So I thought I'd share it. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. 
I fall in. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in this same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. It didn't happen straight away. It, it took a good year or so to kind of piece together a kind of way of being and being self-employed in a way which people knew where you were and what you could offer. But it definitely, well, that, I'm happier now than I was then, for sure. So <laughs> I'm of, hearing that. I'm witnessing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, also, I mean, there are entrepreneurs. The, the the sort of the movement of entrepreneurs is massive right now. Yeah. Because people are less and less tolerant around operating within systems that don't suit them, which, you know, from my point of view is is demanding excellent leadership. It's requiring leaders who are inspiring and, you know, are are energizing and compellingly ambitious and people want to follow them and they're not so easy to come across. I think that's true. And I, I don't know, maybe it's a sort of generation thing, because I, when I started teaching when I was 21, and I left, that I was 50-51, so it's like nearly 30 years, and you think, once I was in that groove, uh, that was it, you know, that was, yeah. I'm one of those people, like, I just thought, well, I never, that's what I'm going to do now, and I, I do notice younger people are much more sort of fluid, and they're thinking, well, I might do that, I might do this, and I believe that even sometimes there are like within the education sector there are types of schools, and I often feel like, like there's a school type regime which works in a certain way, and some people don't like it. And you think, well, don't work there then. You just yes, exactly. You know, work somewhere else. There are other schools. Find one where you're happy. Find one where the people are ones that you want to work with, because there's plenty of schools. And if you think this is this is it, then you're going to constantly be fighting against it. It's you're not going to be happy there. So don't don't try to be. Um, yeah i don't know maybe that's just i think it's really important tom i think i think we have to be able to back ourselves and believe that actually there's many things that we're here to do and yeah. i i think forcing a pause sometimes to ask yourself have i done that for enough i mean you, you're talking to someone who stepped away from education years ago and plunged into setting up her own business and i'm so pleased i did that i'm also so pleased i taught for 13 years but um, you know, there may be something else now. Who knows? You know, as people are ever evolving. And I love the fact that we have the potential to ever evolve if we make that choice. Yeah. But what you're yeah. highlighting is that you can make that choice. And if you are smart enough to sort of slow down sometimes, I think, is what you're saying, to look. To look around and to sort of to look for other opportunities and... I guess to some extent you've got to be prepared to fish around and, and explore what's possible. So even, even from over the last six years in my work, I've kind of become more specialised in, in certain things. I used to do 
a, a more more broad set of things. But now, this is what I like doing. This is what I. It's very exclusive to to a certain set of things, and I and I you find a new groove that you enjoy. Yeah. To have that, have the confidence that, hope you know, post one career you can do something else. Another another you know, a good friend of mine, who worked for a long time in the NHS, as a scientist doing some genetics and things, is now um. A wood furniture designer, carpenter, furniture and make makes beautiful things with wood, and totally different. Yeah. Very happy doing it, and you know, and of course there are some practical things about you need to be able to live. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, but to, to have to to to, to perceive that there's a change is a good thing and can be, especially in terms of mental health and all those sorts of things. You know, doing when you finally are doing the thing that you really enjoy. Yeah. Um, you choose to do then you're then that's that's great isn't it yeah well you sound like you've gone naturally into the last two questions that i always ask a guest tom which is if you had to say two things that you would offer to anyone listening to the podcast what would be your two pay forwards for someone who wants to be better under pressure okay well i, I i'm going to say one which is is to you know when it's really intense pressure that kind of negative pressure is to evaluate whether it's something you want to stay in and solve or whether you should just step away and look look beyond because to me that that is something you should give yourself permission to do that it's not a kind of cop out um it might be better for everybody better for you to just change track completely rather than feel you know allow yourself to feel that you failed so just think no i'd be better doing something better different and that that's the first thing and, yep. and the other one is to say, in the kind of the immediate response, I just think, I mean, I can't advocate it enough. I go walking in the woods. <laughs> I <laughs> because love that. it's a kind of, I don't know, it's a kind of um just it gives you time to, to breathe, give yourself that time. And it might not be literally walking in the woods. You could use that as a metaphor for doing the thing which gives you space to think and and do that for as long as you need until you've got the until you've got your head together i love that and i love the fact that it may not necessarily be in the woods but it's like a statement to remind yourself i've got a statement where i say um up the mountain time i mm. want up the mountain time and i may not you know I, i'm in the center yeah. of london it's rare that i'm going to find a mountain to get up to <laughs> but it's a feeling i had yeah, yeah. when i was up a mountain that i can remember profoundly and create up the mountain time Sarah whatever that might be now and I love that idea of go for a walk in the woods Tom thank you so much thank you enjoyed that it was great yeah great conversation (laughs) what did you say very therapeutic (laughs) (laughs) that's what so many people say at the end of this is Mm. I didn't think we could talk for an hour around pressure but actually how yeah how illuminating it's been and I I I love that idea of being able to have space to deep dive on something. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne-Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. And don't forget, if you'd like to sign up for our fortnightly Pressure Points newsletter, where I summarise key points from each conversation you can find a link at sarahmilnrow.com. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method. Alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. 
Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks for listening. And you won't be surprised that over the next two weeks, we will be honouring our shed and taking an off-off break. The next podcast will drop in January. Till then, goodbye. Thank you.